really interested in working with organizations and campaigns, large and small, who are willing to innovate and dream big and kind of go deep with us as we build this platform and think about better, smarter, and more effective ways to engage and organize people. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guests today, Nathan Woodhull and John Warno, are two people with a strong history in the intersection of organizing progressive politics and technology. Nathan, who spoke on this show about his career and his first company, Control Shift, back in 2019, has a startup now called Daisy Chain with John, who is co-founder of 350.org and more recently VP at Get Through. I wanted to understand what they're up to with Daisy Chain, which is working to provide a 360-degree view of supporters by connecting data from a bunch of different political technology applications, as well as adding additional features. So after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with John and Nathan of Daisy Chain. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from TimePlots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. TimePlots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. John and Nathan, would you each mind introducing yourselves and giving me quick biographies? In Nathan's case, since you've been on the show, I think it was back in 2019, we can refer listeners to a longer discussion of your path, but why don't you start out with a quick one, and John, you, why don't you be more expansive? I've been knocking around the sort of progressive tech space for most of my career and have always been like the person who's a little bit of a software engineer and a little bit of an organizer. I started off in this space at America Coming Together back, back in the day, a long time ago now doing some photo file and, and GeoTV stuff. Spent some time at that Blue and Mobile Commons, moved to DC and worked at the DNC for a little bit, and then started this company, Control Shift, which builds a distributed organizing platform and it's still going strong. But about two years ago, decided it was time to start stepping away from Control Shift and Daisy Chain, which we're here to talk about now, is the, the sort of final conclusion of that of that transition, although I'm still involved with the, the team who's there and supporting their work, um, but just much less than I had been. Makes sense. John? Yeah, so uh, my name's John Warno. I live in uh, the Hudson Valley in upstate New York. I spent most of my career working at the intersection of technology and digital organizing. Uh, I came up in the, the climate justice movement uh, and worked in the nonprofit space for about 10 years. I ended up transitioning from that work to do a stint 
working directly on political campaigns in 2016. And more recently, I've worked as a kind of tech provider supporting democratic campaigns and progressive organizations with tools that can help them build power and organize in their communities. I was working at a company called GetThrough, providing peer-to-peer texting and phone banking tools. And then about a year ago, teamed up with Nathan to co-found Daisy Chain. How did you come to this interest in politics and how did you come to your interest in technology? Was that part of your education? Was that part of your family? If I really scan back into my childhood, it probably is influenced by uh, my family and my upbringing. I remember my father bringing home the original Nintendo Entertainment System, which was absolutely just wild technology when it was first released. And I was fascinated by that at a young age. And as I grew up, I kind of continued to dig into the tech world. I remember kind of tinkering and building my own computers in my attic when I was in high school. But I wasn't only an indoor kid. Like I also really did enjoy getting way outside and backpacking and going into the woods and over the mountains and all that stuff. And I think that time spent outside really helped solidify a commitment that I had to the environment and to protecting nature and the planet and the the people who live on it. That formative experience as a kid, kind of on the one hand, reading sci-fi and building computers, and on the other hand, backpacking in the woods kind of came together in my career where I ended up using technology, uh, as I said, to build up an organization called 350.org, which I was a co-founder of. And that's an international movement for climate justice that connects people doing grassroots organizing all around the world to take meaningful political action. Can I ask you a little bit about that, especially the founding and stuff, because I've always found that interesting. And I had talked to Jamie and Phil, who I think were associated also quite early. Where did that come from? What's the founding story of 350 from your perspective? Yeah, so I went to college in Vermont at a school called Middlebury, a small liberal arts college. And Middlebury has this unusual structuring of their semesters where they have uh, what's known as a 414 plan, meaning that you have a normal semester in the fall and in the spring. But in between, in January, you have this weird little one-month-long semester where you can dive deep in one specific topic and kind of study that intensively. And that's often an opportunity for people to kind of branch out beyond their academic focus or maybe their comfort zone. I actually showed up to the wrong class during that January term semester. I ended up in a room that was for a class being taught about building an international climate movement, building a climate movement to take on this great challenge that we had. And at that point, I was dimly aware of climate change. Who was teaching that class? I was a professor named John Isham, who's an amazing professor and has influenced so, so many people that that I know. And I just have the utmost respect for him. And that class was actually a bit of a kind of radicalizing moment for me, unexpectedly. I kind of knew that climate change was a thing that I should probably be concerned about it. But that class really brought me to my aha moment, my climate awakening, where I realized that this particular challenge was in many ways singular, was existential and had this ticking clock attached to it. That class was amazing in a bunch of ways, but perhaps the greatest thing it did was put me in close contact with 
people who would later on become my co-founders of 350.org. There was a group of us that started to meet outside of class to figure out how we could organize students on campus to decarbonize buildings. And then we started thinking bigger. We said, hey, could we organize in Middlebury? We organize across the state of Vermont. And that same crew of people that was doing the kind of campus and state-based organizing gradually did deeper and deeper work together and expanded their vision first to become a national campaign that was called Step It Up, that was all about empowering volunteers across the country to organize in their communities for climate action. And then Step It Up evolved into 350.org. I know that you were there almost eight years. For you, what were the highlights? I got to say, it was such a wild ride. When we started, it was just seven of us, the friends I had in college who co-founded this organization and a writer and professor who wrote the very first book about climate change for a general audience. I'm sure uh, you and many of the listeners here have heard of him. His name is Bill McKibben. That little crew that started 350.org ended up expanding fairly dramatically over the course of eight years. So we ended up with a staff that was, I think, 150 people when I left. And they were people all around the world working on this issue. I think the thing that uh, in many ways I miss about my days at 350 is having those real connections and friendships and collaborations across borders and across culture. My work in the last few years has been a little bit more focused on kind of the U.S. political space. And it's very easy to kind of get sucked into that world because it is very important. Going from seven to 150 or so, that's a, actually a lot and totally changes how you lead. Are there any lessons that you took from that course that you m might apply as you're building a new organization now? Yeah. One is that you need to make sure that the people in your organization really know each other. And we try to do this in a variety of ways at 350. Of course, it's hard when your staff is spread out around the world. And increasingly today, so many people are working remotely. And so this issue crops up even in smaller organizations. But we really try to uh, get to know our colleagues, to organize regular kind of retreats and offsites, because there's truly nothing like seeing someone, looking them in the eye, sharing a meal, and building that relationship to make sure that the organization functions well. If the relationships aren't there, everything else falls apart very quickly. Did you have another lesson that you wanted to point out, or was that the main one? It's super important as an organization grows, and this applies to organizations of any kind, to make sure that everyone is kind of crystal clear on the vision and the values of that organization. If that isn't clear and if that isn't taught and modeled as part of onboarding, as part of the you know campaigns that an organization runs, I think that the danger is that organizations as they grow can start pulling in different directions at once. And that slows them down, uh, can make things less efficient and less effective. Were you poached by the Bernie campaign or did you seek it out or did you know people there? What took you over to that rather memorable campaign? What ended up happening is that having spent so much time in Vermont in college, um, I got to sort of witness the 
magical effect that Bernie Sanders can have on people. You know, Vermont is often thought of as a very blue state, but people often forget that there's real pockets of conservatism there, large swaths of rural areas. And I got to see Bernie engage with so many different kinds of people with this very progressive vision as an unabashed democratic socialist. From my college days, I was always very intrigued by what Bernie Sanders might be able to do if he had set his sights on a national stage. To be honest, as the campaign in 2016 really ramped up, as Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton built out their campaign operations, I started to become increasingly concerned about some of the trends that I saw. And I thought that Bernie Sanders might have a unique ability to kind of inject a lot of enthusiasm and imbue that race with kind of collectivist vision that I was very drawn to. And so how'd you land there and what'd you do? So I ended up going to the Paris Climate Talks in 2015. It was sort of a capstone of a lot of my work at 350, where this big international climate agreement was signed. That was in December of 2015. I got back from that trip and I got a call from Becky Bond, who was working on the Bernie campaign, helping to build out this distributed organizing team. She said, hey, I heard that you like this guy, Bernie Sanders, and I think we're doing some interesting work up here and we should talk. We should talk about the possibilities. So I ended up kind of talking to a few people on the team and ended up taking what was thought to be a leave of absence from 350. My intention was to return to that organization and stay very squarely in the climate justice movement. But I think what happened is that I kind of got, got bit by the political bug and also I was starting to have real concerns that unless we figured out a way to unlock U.S. climate politics, it would be very difficult to make the kinds of changes that we needed on the international stage. How did you take not winning that race? I did better than a lot of people, which is to say I went into the race thinking that Bernie Sanders was a long shot candidate in that primary. I had no illusions about it. And there was only a very brief moment during the campaign where it seemed like there might be a plausible path to victory for him. But for the most part, I was working on that campaign because I believed in Bernie. I believed in his vision. I thought maybe if all the stars align perfectly, he has a path to the nomination. But I never thought that it was the most likely outcome. Of course, it always stings to lose a campaign that you're invested in. But in some ways, at that time when Bernie really did lose, I was much more concerned about the um, rise and the movement around Donald Trump than I was about Bernie Sanders' loss. What concerned you about Trump? I think it struck me quite early that despite his kind of clownish and buffoonish appearances, He had a kind of charisma that a lot of people on the left were too quick to dismiss. And I thought that we needed to take him much more seriously and that he did pose a kind of existential threat to American democracy. In in 2016, I ended up moving on to work on a congressional campaign after that, trying to kind of do my part to turn out the vote and organize in this congressional district. But the whole time, there was this kind of 
creeping storm cloud approaching of Donald Trump. And, and sure enough, uh, when he won, it was, you know, I had the same terrible night, terrible week, terrible year that all of us did. Still going. The congressional campaign you worked for, one of the great names in American politics, Zephyr Teachout. Tell me about that. Zephyr is just an incredible woman and has brought so much to the discourse around corruption, around standing up for what's right. That campaign was a real learning experience for me, particularly around aligning one's talents and passions with the role that one seeks. Um, I ended up being very excited to join the campaign in any capacity. It turns out the capacity that I joined in was communications director. And I do not have a background in communications. I do not have a lot of relationships with reporters. I struggled in that role. I ended up, I think, contributing to the campaign in a bunch of positive ways. I ended up helping with some of the organizing, helping do a bunch of video production. But I definitely emerged from that campaign thinking, whatever it is I do next, I want it to be really well aligned with my areas of expertise and passion. I interviewed Daniel, who's the founder of Get Through, oh, back in 2019 also, I think some number of months after I interviewed Nathan. I don't think I had a deep interest in these numerous texting companies that were showing up then, but I do follow political technology and he did seem like he had something that he was doing. Why did you join that firm and how was that run? I had worked with Daniel on the Bernie campaign. And before that, we had known each other when we were both living out in California. Daniel ended up on the Bernie campaign sort of getting assigned this weird little special project. It was kind of a side project when it started, which was to figure out this kind of peer-to-peer texting thing. Some people in the field on the Bernie campaign had been experimenting with peer-to-peer texting. It seemed to show some potential. And so Daniel was tasked with really scoping it out. And what ended up happening is that he built this incredible distributed volunteer operation to do large-scale peer-to-peer texting in politics for the first time. And I was very impressed by the growth of that operation, the impact that it had, particularly around volunteer recruitment and organizing. And when the Bernie campaign wrapped up, Daniel said, hey, I think this peer-to-peer texting thing is very powerful. At that point, I think there was only one tool available in the space to do that kind of work. And Daniel said, progressives and nonprofits need more options for this kind of thing. It would be absurd if there was only one mailer that campaigns and organizations could use. He ended up starting Get Through, which was then called Relay before a forced rebranding. Quite early on, he called me and said, hey, you should come on board, be part of this. And I said, no, 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 I can't. I'm going to work on this congressional campaign. But when that campaign wrapped up and after Trump won, Daniel and I started talking again. And at that point, there were, I think, no employees. There were only kind of the co-founders of Get Through. I was the first employee and again, kind of was in this organization at the ground floor. And over the course of the next four years, the organization grew quite dramatically. I think there were about 50 people by the time I left. We ended up working with thousands of campaigns and organizations providing not only peer-to-peer texting tools, but also phone banking tools. I learned a ton about 
what it takes to uh, grow a company and build uh, useful political technology. And I'm trying to leverage a lot of those lessons into my current effort with Nathan, which is Daisy Chain. You say you learned a ton. Can you share a little of that? Sure, yeah. The team at Get Through was very good at a lot of things. And I try to sort of take those lessons forward. So one of the first things is really just going deep with customers, really understanding their challenges, maybe visiting them, like actively getting to understand the day-to-day struggles that they have with their tools, with their data, so that we can build software that really solves actual problems. And I think too often people in the kind of political tech space, they'll swoop in, they'll say, hey, I have this great idea, I'm going to disrupt politics. And they build this thing kind of in a vacuum without working in close collaboration with people on the ground. And that was always something that Get Through did very well. And it was, of course, helped by the fact that Daniel, who was at the top of that pyramid, had arguably more direct experiences with building out scaled peer-to-peer texting programs than anyone else. In the space of political tech, you really do want to be grounded in the kind of specific challenges that people have, whether that's by going deep with campaigns and organizations, or whether that's by being in the trenches yourself. What's the current situation with Get Through? I haven't followed where it stands or what it's up to or how it's doing competitively. Yeah, I'm not I'm not involved day to day with uh, the team there, so I probably don't know all the latest details. But my understanding is that they are cranking along. They've upgraded the dialer from the one that we had when I was working there uh, and that they still have a big base of not only political campaigns that are working with them, but also nonprofit organizations and colleges and universities. They did have some struggles that many companies in this space have, which is essentially the boom and bust cycle of political campaigns and figuring out how to right size a team to to manage that expansion and contraction. They're alive and well. Nathan, you've been very patient. (laughs) It it was great, actually. I feel like there were bits of that that I was learning for the first time. So that, that was actually wonderful. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad to provide that experience because John says that, you know, you really need to get to know your team when you're building a company. So (laughs) hopefully we've improved things over there. John, what is the founding story for Daisy Chain? You have a enterprise, which we've talked about, which provides a tool set already. What is Daisy Chain over and above that? So to be clear, there's totally separate ventures, right? So Control Shift is continuing apace. Kristen Origi, who has been with Control Shift for over a decade, is now um, leading the team there. And she's probably more capable than I am at, at leading that organization forward. I have been uh, working on that venture for 12 years from you know its initial founding when it was very scrappy to like building a team and then having the, the privilege of working with customers around the world and and sort of like help changing how they they worked, right? Like to make them more participatory and distributed. One of those organizations was 350.org, which is how John and I first met, was that I was a vendor. 350, actually quite early on in Control Shift's development. And as a result, I feel like that's actually how we 
we first had a collaborative relationship was like John often was coming to me and being like, what if we did this little thing? Or like, here's this like weird little idea that we've like come up with that was like a new way of, of plugging things together. And so I feel like when we both ended up living here in the Hudson Valley, we saw each other out again as like people who it, we enjoyed like figuring things out together in this professional space. Like, what what is what is possible with organizing tech and so i think that's how daisy chain started to come together was the two of us thinking about this space we were both we had both sort of taken a pause from the ventures that we had been working on and then thinking about like what the space needed what uh challenges and opportunities we were excited about working on we both still were kind of obsessed with like people power, how to build like tools for organizers, like how to build um, software that allows people to like scale volunteer teams and like put them to use in new ways in addition to like actually have like real scaled impact in the world. That's always sort of been both of our, our sort of North Stars career wise. It's like, how do we sort of use this stuff to like create political impact in the world? So, John, what it, what did you think was missing in the organizing tech world, or however we want to call this? Yeah. Uh, so, you know, Nathan and I, through our previous roles, had gotten the chance to work with lots and lots of different organizations, and you can't help but start to see patterns when you're in contact with that many organizers working across different countries, across different issues. And we were really struck by the fact that the same things were coming up over and over and over again. Nathan and I, our first formative conversation about what we should build and why we should build it happened when we were hiking up a mountain here in the Hudson Valley. We were just kind of trading stories of these different organizations who were just challenged by the nightmares of too much data and tools that didn't talk to each other, the inability to actually see the people in their supporter database as anything more than a line on a spreadsheet. And we said, hey, we think that there's some potential here to build something new. And that new thing is Daisy Chain. We call Daisy Chain a modern platform for effective organizing. That's kind of the, the tagline. All those words are chosen like very carefully. So it might help to kind of break down each one of those words. It is a modern tool because we're building Daisy Chain here in 2023. That means we're building it to be really fast and user friendly. And it's just sort of designed for the world that we live in now. And that's a world that's shaped by mobile communications. And in the organizing space, it's shaped by new models of organizing that are kind of empowered by technology, distributed organizing, relational organizing, and, and a lot of remote organizing. So that's the, the modern piece. Platform is important to us because we see Daisy Chain as this kind of single player in a large ecosystem of really great tools and technology. And Daisy Chain is designed to be a platform, a foundation that other tools and data can kind of sit on top of. The third word in the tagline, a modern platform for effective organizing, uh, we're really focused on moving the needle. So we are building Daisy Chain to help progressives have 
material impact in the world. The platform is designed to sort of surface up insights and analytics. They help our clients know what's working, what's not. And the tools themselves are built in a way to make it really easy for campaigns to implement different best practices when it comes to things like texting or get out the vote efforts. And then finally, organizing. We're doing effective organizing because everything that we do is really about bringing people together to create real material change, the change that the world desperately needs right now. Now, I know there was like a lot of kind of abstract words and jargon. So I'm happy to dive in to talk about like the features and what the platform actually does in a more brass tacks way. The vision we have is to create a modern platform for effective organizing. And we think we're pretty far along in that journey. Well, I can see why you were VP for sales at Get Through. There's a there's kind of a clarity to like putting that together and saying it emphatically and persuasively that I admire. We, we try to be deliberate with our language and our approach here. And it is hard to take an abstract concept and have a structure for presenting it. I think it's not, it, it takes a knack and it takes some practice. I don't know what Daisy Chain is, however, based on that. At least a solid subset of the listeners to this podcast will be interested in the details of that. So I, I, it's one of the rare audiences where you could probably hold the room uh, going into details on it. I don't know which of you want to tackle that, but maybe both. So there are lots and lots of tools and technologies that are out there for organizing. Most of them want to be a platform. They want to be the platform. They want to own the platform. And they're very jealous and sometimes sharp elbowed some of them about someone else who wants to be a platform. Some want to be the database of record, really. And also there's a tendency, not shared by everybody, but a tendency to evolve a, a platform into a very broad set of tools that tries to cover everything that you have those intense conversations about with customers. How do you add what isn't out there already and play nice as it sounds like you want to with the existing tools? Why do people need Daisy Chain and what will it do for them? Yeah. I'm going to interpret this question as like permission to nerd out a little bit. It's okay also to to be frank about what you see not working well, even if it's companies that I had something to do with or <laughs> whatever. <laughs> so, yeah, let's let's get into it. So, in in really kind of practical terms, you can think of Daisy Chain like a jetpack for your existing tech stack. Our approach is not to be the one tool that does everything. There's a bunch of tools out there that try to do that. And our view on that is that it's really, really difficult to do everything well. And increasingly, we're living in a world where there's very, very good point source solutions for specific tasks. So if you are trying to raise money for a political campaign, it's going to be very difficult for Nathan and I at Daisy Chain to build something that can be as good or better as ActBlue. And similarly, if you're trying to organize and recruit for a bunch of events, it's going to be really hard for us to build a better events management system than Mobilize, which emerged in the last, I don't know, six, seven years and is absolutely terrific for what it does. The issue is that so many campaigns and organizations are using these best-in-class specialized tools, but those tools aren't always playing nicely together. And that leads to what we often call data chaos. 
people are struggling to integrate these tools and data. And it's very difficult to get a 360 degree view of what people are doing, of not only the donation that they made, but also the event that they attended and also the conversation that they had with an organizer and the two-way text uh, exchange that they had. And so one of the things that Daisy Chain does is pull together all of this data from those existing tools. So you can not only get that 360 degree view in a nice modern interface, but you can also then do interesting things on top of that integrated data set. So you can very easily target a list across those different data points. And you can also build automations for each of these things that sort of synthesize these experiences that are often really siloed. You'll have a donor experience versus a volunteer experience. And Daisy Chain is very good at doing some of the kind of orchestration and cross-pollination across those things. There's both like the experience of people who are working at these organizations who are struggling to manage all these different things. What that actually ends up doing is ruining the supporter experience because the supporter experience ends up feeling really disjointed. Each of these tools don't know about the things that happened in the other ones. And so if you're interacting with an organization, it can often feel very impersonal. I get the image of a daisy, a, a central part of a flower with a lot of petals around it. I'm confused by the chain because the chain seems like a linear connection of different uh, flowers. Ex can you explain why Daisy Chain and not Daisy? Sure. The space that I think Nathan and I came up in, the kind of digital organizing space, has used this term Daisy Chain for a long time. It's basically meant to connect different tools and actions. So one common example is you get a bunch of people to sign a petition. And then after they sign that petition, they're redirected to, let's say, a donation page. And so that general kind of term of art has been floating around for a long time. It's also used in a wide variety of fields. So in electrical engineering, you call it daisy chaining when you're actually connecting different types of components into an integrated circuit. We really like this name because it gets at what we're trying to do, which is kind of connect up these different tools, these different sources of data, and use it to make a more integrated experience that is better for volunteers, better for donors, and ultimately going to be more effective at winning campaigns and building power. Because this has been a long time problem, the integration of data goes back as far as I can remember as a problem increasingly as a problem as as more and more what you call point solutions were developed but everybody was complaining about this in in 2003 because of that there are a bunch of different people working on assembling the data together not necessarily from a software vantage point a variety of the democratic data they're around to pull together data maybe not just from one organization but from multiple how does that fit in that there are these data collections out there? I think that we have very different visions, very complementary visions, actually. Um, I think that a lot of those groups are, are solving like real and important problems for data analysts. Um, they're building these like giant data warehouses, uh, especially of voter file data, whereas we're starting out at least really focused on an organization's volunteers, supporters, donors. 
I think we, we will expand to voter file stuff, but that's not where we've started, at least. The other big difference is we are building for organizers and campaigners. That is squarely who we're trying to serve. Um, and if we help some data analysts out or some like data integration people out, like that's great. But I think if you were to talk to TMC or DDX or the Community Tech Alliance folks, they are seeing their customer as a, as a data analyst who is trying to build a model or do something like that rather than someone who's trying to build um, an experience for supporters or experience for voters directly. I think that Nathan's answer kind of leads us to back to your question, Nathaniel, which is like, you get the daisy, but like, why the chain? The chain is part of what we do with our platform that I think is also kind of pretty differentiated. The work that we do on the automations front, especially, I think is really emblematic of how we see some of the unique value that we add. So within Daisy Chain, you have this very easy to use automations builder. And automations let organizations and campaigns kind of take these existing things that are happening out there in the world, donation or an RSVP or someone submitting a kind of a volunteer interest form. And it takes those as triggers for this larger set of linked activities and platforms. So to put just like a concrete example, uh, let's think about a very common political experience. Let's say, Nathaniel, that you learn about a candidate, you see an ad or someone tells you about him, you go to their website and you're like, man, this candidate seems pretty great. I'm excited. You see that there's a volunteer sign-up form. Uh, you decide to fill it out to kind of get plugged into the campaign. I often get very excited about campaigns and candidates. So I've probably filled out dozens of these volunteer sign-up forms. You know what happens when you fill out one of these forms? A lot of times, nothing. Nothing, nothing, or at least not much. You might get redirected after you fill out the form to like a donation page, which is not the thing you came to do. Maybe you get like a generic automated email response. that's like someone from the campaign will be in touch. And then maybe, maybe a field organizer will like BCC you on an email a few weeks later with everyone who signed up to volunteer. And the whole experience is just kind of not great. But with Daisy Chain, campaigns can build automations to make that process much more efficient and much more personal. So if you fill out that volunteer form to a campaign that's using Daisy Chain, that campaign might have built an automation. And so instead of hitting kind of this brick wall when trying to volunteer, your experience this time is a little different. So five minutes after you submit that form, the automation might be programmed to assign you automatically to the right field organizer on the campaign, and then to send you a personalized message from that field organizer. Maybe that organizer is asking you how much time you have to volunteer, what your interest is, or if you wanna schedule a one-on-one -on -one call to kind of get plugged into the campaign. Or maybe Daisy Chain just sends a link directly to the mobilize event that's happening nearest you. It just makes it much more likely that you're gonna get plugged into the campaign, that you're going to do real work, that you have a human connection to these campaigns when all too often, increasingly, these campaigns are not treating their most important people, their volunteers, their donors, as actual individuals who have real contributions to make. And so we're building Daisy Chain and particularly the automations piece to help jump on those really important opportunities that are too often missed by these campaigns. Let me just ask one question. So who is a target client for you? Because it seems to me 
this must be for more significantly sized organizations to even employ multiple technologies already, to have somebody who can wire daisy chain into the operation, including making automations, including being aware of the the, the pieces that are out there. What, what is the ideal client for you guys? Initially, when we started Daisy Chain, we thought the exact same thing that you did. We said, hey, we're building something for these bigger organizations, these statewide campaigns. And we do think those are really great clients for Daisy Chain. They have the sort of data, the tools, the expertise to kind of really get a lot out of Daisy Chain. But we've been very surprised and encouraged by the fact that a lot of our clients are actually smaller scale. There's community organizations, there's state-ledge campaigns who are using Daisy Chain. And because the interface is really easy to set up, and because even at that small scale, a lot of those campaigns, they are using ActBlue. They are using Mobilize. They do have this challenge of stitching together these different data sources. And our approach in Daisy Chain to say, hey, you don't need to have a data analyst or engineer on your team. This is a tool for organizers. Sometimes that organizer is the candidate, but they're still using Daisy Chain in a really effective way. We think that as the 2024 cycle does ramp up, there will be larger organizations that can do very interesting things with Daisy Chain at scale. So we have a whole bunch of features that we haven't even dug into around how we do kind of assignments and distributed organizing and texting and all this stuff. And we think that those features are very useful at a larger scale campaign. And there's actually one thing that we just launched that we suspect will be useful kind of for a different type of organization than the existing kind of daisy chain client base. And that is the type of organization that is doing large scale voter contact. We recently launched this feature that we call Charms, and Charms enable you to send out personalized GIFs at scale. Those GIFs can be designed to do whatever you want. You can insert any content or data, but a very common use case for this kind of thing would be, let's send someone a reminder to go vote, but let's make that voting reminder as effective and engaging as possible. So with this new feature, Nathaniel, you could get an animated GIF on your phone that says, hey, Nathaniel, early voting has started. Your polling place is the MLK Elementary School and polls are open nine till nine. And the whole image is, you know, dynamic and personalized. And we think that some of those innovative texting features that we've launched can be a really good fit for some of these larger scale operations that might not be doing as much in terms of sort of high touch organizing, but might really be moving the needle when it comes to actually tipping these close elections in swing states. So again, as the cycle heats up, we're really excited to see you know, what, what campaigns and organizations do with this. And that kind of thing is only possible because we've brought all the data together. Our sort of vision is that we can both build better organizing experiences, but also build better mass communication experiences like at the moment just sms but like we will probably add email and other channels after that but because we have this 360 degree view of people we can do much more personalized experiences when we we send sort of broadcast messages to large audiences in addition to some of the automations for for one-on-one stuff nathan how, how much trouble has it been to integrate and to automate the different platforms and point solutions 
that already exist. Are they all congenial about that? What have you run into in terms of the ability to do that as well and as much as you would like and to be able to pull the data that's in another platform into yours and all those pieces? It's a lot of work. Like there's just a lot of just engineering work to do and to do it well. Just the number of tools is significant. But I think what we found is that at all of these organizations, um, there are people at, at the other end. And if you build relationships with people, you can solve a lot of these problems. That's been our our path forward, right? Like is is spending time with our peers to like convince them that this is additive and then also like build a personal relationship with the, the engineers on the other side. And like that's that's made it made it possible, easy to do some of this. If if you were advising a I don't know, congressional campaign uh, that didn't yet have any tech stack whatsoever and they liked what you have to offer, what else at this point would they necessarily need to, you know, to fill out all of the main pieces of a proper operation technologically? It's always helpful to sort of zoom out and be like, okay, what do campaigns need? They need money, they need volunteers, and they need votes. And so I think that a modern tech stack needs to kind of check all of those boxes. So on the money side, ActBlue, of course, is the go-to. I will say that there are interesting new players in the online fundraising space that are definitely worth keeping a close eye on and uh, experimenting with and supporting, including a couple of our cohort companies in the Higher Ground Labs cohort. So Good Change and Oath are both doing really interesting, important things. Beyond the money piece, there's the kind of volunteers and events piece. So I've talked about Mobilize already, of course. We think that's a great platform and definitely works well for small campaigns, but also congressional, statewide, national campaigns. It's pretty much become a kind of indispensable piece of the modern political tech stack. And then, of course, you'll need a kind of robust CRM of record. And Daisy Chain does have some elements to it that are CRM-ish, but we don't really claim to be the single source of data on the CRM front. I think that for the foreseeable future, campaigns, of course, will be using Van. Some campaigns also find interesting ways to plug in other tools like Action Kit and Action Network. But those are, I would say, kind of the core components. There's also the piece about like just the website itself, like the core website. There's also interesting new players in this space that I think we'll be integrating with in short order. There's a platform called Run that makes it really easy for campaigns and organizations to design and build beautiful, functional websites really quickly. There's probably NGP. You need to like file your your finance reports. There are some some new entrants in that space as well. Campaign Deputy is starting to, and Numero is starting, I think, to do a little bit bit of that stuff. There's a lot of other stuff that I think would be really dependent on the kind of race you're running. If I were organizing in a really sort of like dense area, like a city, I probably would use Reach. If I thought that I could like leverage like networks of people and sort of do sort of relational organizing, I might talk to the rally folks. It depends on like what the the strategy might be, right? Like it's it's really really hard hard to know. And what you listed is actually, I mean, I'm aware of all those, but there are others as well. And it and I think it's a, I mean, I think it makes for a pretty challenging environment 
to wade into. It's a tricky place to put a company. There's like a genius to fitting in and making what you do enhance everything else that's out there. And there's also kind of a lack of control, I guess, about like knowing from the get-go that people are going to be in other environments that and that you can't control them and you have to work well with them. As you are working to get a company off the ground with this model, how, how is that working from the sales front, more putting together your own brand point of view? We're learning a ton on that front, but we're really excited about the kind of traction that we have so far. We have, you know, a bunch of customers that uh, pay us money every month because they think our tools are valuable. I mean, that's a really good sign with almost anything. When you're starting a business, it's one thing to have something that you like. It's another thing to have somebody actually pay for the product that you're putting together. Yeah, no, it's one of the easier or cleaner things about being kind of on the vendor or tech provider side, as opposed to like working for a nonprofit doing advocacy, where sometimes the metrics of success are a little harder to gauge. Uh, so yeah, it's it's good that we have these customers and we're bringing on more customers every week. And we're also learning more about the best ways for Daisy Chain to plug in and be really useful in what is, as you alluded to, a, a crowded space with lots of different players. Um, we are trying to be kind of a really friendly, open player in this evolving ecosystem. We're in some ways all on the same team. The grander mission that we're all working towards is to you know, elect Democrats up and down the aisle, build progressive power in communities. And I think that to, to Nathan's point earlier, when you actually talk to the people at these different companies, they recognize the universal challenges of integrating all this data across all of these tools and more often than not are really willing to put in some work to help solve that challenge for our shared clients. I want to ask you a little bit more about you both. One of you mentioned NGP, one of you mentioned Van. We all know that there's NGP Van now under Bonterra or coming out from under Bonterra or something. I think their model for integration, last I knew, was we will connect to hundreds of different vendors and they would probably say the data resides here, like in that nexus of NGP Van on the back end. And therefore, whatever you need is already accomplished by all of the stuff landing there. Now, I, I suspect that in what you're talking about with, you know, modern platform for effective organizing, there's some feeling that one, that isn't what NGP Van is offering in some extent, and two, that there are tools that you're building that go beyond what they're offering however broad already is you could play as a tool that that augmented that environment the way other people do what is your feeling about why you're needed we're committed to being good partners for everyone and like being additive for everyone in the space for bonterra in particular like for customers right like they may not buy into the sort of bonterra vision of just buy everything from us like out in the world, like it turns out that there are lots of people using a really diverse set of things that, that sometimes don't integrate because Bonterra 
or integrate, don't integrate as well as they might because Bonterra is offering a competitive product. And so there is like real tension between some of those vendors. So for example, we have customers using Action Network alongside Action Network for sort of digital tools and then Bonterra products for sort of other parts of their organizing, some of the field stuff. And those two tools really don't integrate well. Like the Action Network and Mobilize should, in my view, integrate much better than they do, but like they don't for essentially political reasons. And Bonterra owns Mobilize also, right? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. yeah it's, because, it's because of that sort of like tension between the, the sort of... So I think because of that, some of the ways in which that plays out, it, it actually does create a role for us to be sort of like a, a, a way that organizations can still stitch things together. What about from the sort of user interface experience point of view? A lot of what what is at NGP and Van has been around longer, might reflect earlier decisions and not take advantage of technologies that have sprung up since then. Is that part of what you think might distinguish you in the long run? Yeah. I mean, speaking candidly, I think that NGP Van, the whole kind of suite of products under the Bonterra umbrella, remarkable, like very powerful tools that do a lot of things very well and a ton of really like smart, talented people still work there. Nathaniel, to your point about kind of the user interface and maybe the code base of NGP Van, maybe the data model, all of those things, the foundations for them were laid quite a long time ago. And so just to take like one example, I know a lot of organizations and campaigns are leaning into relational organizing in this cycle. It's a really powerful way to kind of do what historically has often been just known as like community organizing or just outreach to your friends and family, but campaigns are figuring out smart ways to scale it. And that whole relational organizing model does not map particularly well to some of the kind of like core data model decisions that have been made within NGP Van. And so we're starting to have this issue where the way people are organizing is evolving and shifting. And when you are overly tied to kind of a single umbrella solution to manage all of those different types of data and different tools, you might come up against some, some real challenges. And the other dynamic here, just to kind of like surface things that I think a lot of us in this space are tracking is that there have been changes in ownership over on the Bonterra side. And there have been significant layoffs of a lot of really talented people responsible for building and supporting really important pieces of movement infrastructure. And I think a lot of people are concerned about that. One of the reasons that we're building Daisy Chain is we think it's good for the progressive movement and for campaigns to have options when it comes to tools and data. I take that point and certainly people that I cared for have left or been let go over the last year over there. The number of people left, every team over there, every little product team dwarfs your company, right? And <laughs> they still have vastly larger resources to build things or, you know, compete with anybody that they found threatening or hopefully for the sake of all the people using that, they can still improve things. I hear the same uh, 
criticism of the ownership. I'm not sure that it was necessary to have these layoffs. There's certainly resources in the parent company. Why aren't they being applied? I don't have any knowledge at all about what their strategy is or why they're doing this, but it seems like there's a lot left over there. I constantly hear people wanting to replace them. And I'm like, well, it's more work than you think. I think that Van is going to be here for a very long time. And that's a imp really impressive piece of, of infrastructure. And that we aren't trying to replace it. We're trying to like figure out a way to sort of be this glue piece, to be a way to help people sort of stitch things together. But I mean, it's a very viable strategy to build something that becomes the interface for your data and connects to all of the tools that you like. And then over time, if you have success with that, it would make a lot of sense for a customer to make the decision, I'm going to retain these pieces of technology and I'm going to jettison these others and I'm going to keep Daisy Chain because it's the one that centralizes stuff for me. It's, it's like a strategically strong position to be in if you are doing what they like well, right? There's the rub. We're trying to do what we do very well. And uh, to your point, the folks over at Bonterra have enormous resources and still have a large team and they do many things very, very well. And so we have no idea, of course, what the future holds. We don't know how Bonterra and NGP Van are going to evolve and what decisions might be made by various stakeholders involved over there. Because we're so new, I mean, Nathaniel, we started this thing a little over a year ago. And is it uh, just the two of you or are there others? There's another person who's helping out in engineering. Yeah, it's a true startup. True startup, yep. a true startup. And so uh, I would be surprised if anyone over at Bonterra sees Daisy Chain as a real competitive threat. And we're hoping to plug in and add value, honestly, in the next 14 months. We have a huge, massively important election coming up. And, you know, the audience of this podcast does not need to be reminded of like how high the stakes are. One of the th things I like about the vendor space, I, there's a lot I, I could critique, but there's, I think everybody gets that, whether it's the big companies or the small companies, there is a values alignment that I appreciate. And I kind of think had something to do with starting or continuing back in my day. I'm not opposed to technology being partisan or being ideological when the stakes are like this and when the difference between the parties is, is so big. One of the other angles that people have come at this data integration problem from is sort of the dashboard idea. I've always thought that a campaign ought to be able to see on their war room screen what's going on, right? From a top level, from a campaign manager view, what is important. You mentioned all the different parts of the campaign, the, the voter contact, the fundraising, maybe polling. How do we stand? Where are we on our path to victory, as some people call it? And there's been proposals over the years of people building standalone dashboard things. Jeremy Smith has something that's a dashboard. I haven't seen what it is, but 
I guess he's aiming at smaller campaigns first. Do you have that as part of your vision? Have you done something along those lines? What do you think of, of that? It's pretty far away from who we currently see as the customer, right? That the customer is like someone who's like in the trenches doing work um, at one of these organizations. And like, I think that there is a place that we eventually will get to where it makes sense to add some of those features. It's not what we, I think, are building this year. Present with the data that we have in the most consumable strategic way. When I've talk to people about this, I actually kind of worry about productizing it too prescriptively because everyone has like a very different way of thinking. The, the organizations that are that have the capacity to like and the scale to need this sort of um, thing often have data analysts with very strong opinions about like what should go on that dashboard. You could have a customizable dashboard, right? I mean, you could have different widgets I have on my Fitbit, something like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that if anything, like the, the like, what's likely to happen on this front for us is that we are doing all this work to bring all the data together. We have a set of interfaces built into the product for doing organizing. But then all that data that has all been centralized and normalized, and we've done identity resolution across these different tools, if we put that into your data warehouse, that you can then build the right dashboard for your organization and Looker or one of these like other best in breed business intelligence tools. And I don't think we're going to try and build a BI tool, but I think we may be a, a provider of the data in your data warehouse because we've done this, this work to sort of bring everything together that you can then use one of these commercial solutions for that's like truly excellent. Even And Looker at this point is free as well. So like this, it's very hard to, for us to compete with. <laughs> what I'm not clear about is let's say I'm a, some kind of organization that, that, wants to bring in daisy chain and i already have a website that is one vendor and its forms come into a crm i have ActBlue, whatever what are the steps that have to be taken to add daisy chain to that stack yeah, so this is usually the first thing that a new Daisy Chain client will do is that they'll go into the integrations section of the Daisy Chain web application. And this is one of those areas that we have tried to borrow some ideas from kind of the commercial space for how to enable integrations to work really easily. So oftentimes in the past, if you needed to you know, integrate a bunch of different tools, you're contracting an engineer to build out a custom sync. It maybe breaks, it's not easy to set up or manage or view. With Daisy Chain, we basically take the approach that a lot of these kind of commercial and enterprise tools take, which is we have a nice interface within the application. You click a button to connect it to your mobilize account. There's a little wizard that kind of guides you through the process of how to grab your you know API key from mobilize, plug it into Daisy Chain, and the whole thing get set up in a few minutes? It varies based on which third-party tool we're talking about. Some of them have very nice uh, workflows and some of them are a bit more manual depending on like what the thing is on the other side. And we have very different approaches to doing that depending on... I mean, so for example, we have like a little JavaScript snippet for um, every action form. So it allows us to like hook in um, to what is not usually a real-time sort of API, but allows us to know immediately and sort of turn 
what is normally like a, a, an API that you have to pull from and know that there's a new act, new activity to pull from into something that we can we can process in real time. That's the another sort of like core tenant for us is how to make every integration that we are doing not a nightly sync, but as, as close to real time as possible. One of you mentioned that you're part of the higher ground current cohort. I'm wondering why you applied there and what you've gotten out of it. So for anyone in the audience that doesn't know what this higher ground labs thing is, it's a very kind of niche tech accelerator and incubator. So what they do is provide some investment, some funding, and they also provide a tremendous amount of support to every company in each of their cohorts. So right now we are one company in a cohort of eight. The folks at Higher Ground Labs, they provide us with various kind of trainings, introductions, resources. And this is everything from like how to manage admin and operations to here's the lay of the land for the kind of democratic ecosystem. Here's how the different committees operate. And here's the key decision maker. And so all of that is really useful, I think, for every company in the cohort. And that includes Nathan and I, who, though we have been kind of in and around this space for a while, everyone's got blind spots. Everyone has something to learn. And we've really enjoyed our experience there so far. And honestly, the best part of it is just getting to collaborate and team up with the other companies in the cohort. There's like so many really smart, cool ideas and the people behind them are humble and generous and strategic. And they're building these really great companies that we expect we'll be collaborating with for years to come. We want them to be, you know, a a tight daisy chain integration as well. There's a lot of movement uh, in this space that we're very excited about. Beyond daisy chain and what you're trying to do, what else do you see missing in the progressive political technology space? I have some ideas. I'm sure Nathan did (laughs) well the thing that is needed right now that is related to political tech, but probably not directly technical, is funding and resources for the organizations out there that are doing super important work in communities to register and turn out voters, to organize at a grassroots level. Uh, There have been a few open letters that have been released lately Uh, really defining the challenge that a lot of these organizations are facing. These organizations need resources. And if anyone listening to this podcast is in a position to help unlock some of those resources, now is the time. We cannot wait until next year. New approaches for fundraising. There are parts of the problem this cycle that are about the exact political place we are and like people's level of excitement out in the world. With the fundraising challenge, part of it as well is like tactical and the sort of like spammy nature uh, of some of the the communications that are out there. Um, and so I think like the sort of donor organizing approach. I think you've had a couple of people talking about like that way of, of thinking about about doing this is still relatively new and not broadly adopted. And so like interesting new ideas for changing the relationship. I think between donors. And the organizations they support is something I'm, I'm really interested in. One other thing is right now, it's pretty hard to connect with other like-minded people at a local level 
who may well be your friends and neighbors who would be very willing to collaborate on political organizing or outreach. All of these organizations, they're out there. They have these lists of millions of people in some cases. And those people are often your neighbors. They're people in your community, but you're not getting connected with them in a kind of direct and facilitated way. I live in the Hudson Valley. I enjoy riding my bike around between the Hudson River and the Catskill Mountains. If there was an organization, let's say the next presidential campaign that said, hey, there's a cyclists for Biden grassroots organizing group, and we're doing a volunteer event next week. Do you want to join? I would be excited to team up with, you know, other people. I mean, didn't Bernie have all of those things through the campaign? Didn't he have like every every title for every subset of people as part of their organizing? There, there was uh, definitely some good work for affinity-based organizing. I think the thing I'm uh, hoping for is a way to kind of scale and almost productize that kind of model so that I can connect with people here in the Hudson Valley around common interests for a larger cause and vision. So many people are atomized, they're lonely, they're isolated, and they still desperately want to connect to something bigger. But it's scary. It's it's hard to sort of like clear through the distractions. Is there a question that I should have asked you guys that I didn't? I think maybe a question around what we need right now on the daisy chain side <laughs> to kind of make the most of this important and kind of perilous political moment. What do you guys need on the daisy chain side <laughs> to make the most of this important and perilous moment? A few things. So one is as part of our commitment to supporting effective organizing, we're really interested in running some randomized control trials to really test what works and what doesn't, particularly around voter turnout. I mentioned this feature that we have earlier to send people these personalized animated gifts, getting them to vote or volunteer. That is something that we think will work. We've layered a bunch of best practices into it but you don't know until you test it. And so it takes resources to run these tests, but they are very, very well-spent resources because if you can figure out what works, especially now in 2023, and then scale it up next year for all of these really close elections, that could have an outsized impact. Have you looked at like an academic partner for that? Yeah, we've done some outreach. There's definitely a lot of interest in testing this. The question is, Who's going to pay for it? And I kid you not, Nathan and I truly are running a scrappy early stage startup right now. <laughs> we recently slept in bunk beds in a hostel during a conference that we were attending. We're not in a position to fund this ourselves, but we're really excited to see this stuff tested. We also are about to begin a round of investment, sort of a pre-seed round for people that believe in this vision of organizing in a more authentic and scalable way. And so if anyone is interested in talking more about that, we're easy to find. The last thing is that we're really interested in working with organizations and campaigns, large and small, who are willing to innovate and dream big and kind of go deep with us as we build this platform and think about better, smarter, and more effective ways to engage and organize people. Sounds good. It's fun to talk to both of you and to get to know you a bit, John. Is there anything else that either of you want to say? 
I just wanted to like thank you again. I think I may have said this the last time I was on, but like it's just like such an important service, especially as both John and I are people who don't live in DC. And so I feel like we sometimes feel a little bit out of the loop and just like hearing everyone's personal stories, getting inspired by the, the things that people are doing, the way that you're connecting the progressive movement, I, I think is is really important and valuable. And thank you for, for doing it. Yeah, I'll, I'll double down on that. In the scrum of the day-to-day work that we're all doing in this movement, it's really easy to forget that you're part of something big, that you're part of something much bigger than the experience you have in your sort of day-to-day bubble. But outside of that bubble, there's a huge movement that's filled with like really brilliant and inspiring people doing so much important work. And Nathaniel, through this podcast, like you, you let us hear that and you let us feel it. I believe very deeply that how we're going to win as a movement is by really building relationships and getting to know each other in a deeper and more authentic way. And this podcast really does help lay the groundwork for that in a lot of ways for so many of us. So thank you. Well, that's appreciated. And and of course, contractually, you had to say all that to get on the show. (laughs) (laughs) I look forward to working with you on other sponsorship opportunities. (laughs) All right. No, uh, thank you much. I am just starting to go to go back to three a week, which is what I had been doing for six years. And it is honestly conversations with good people doing hard work on important things that keep me wanting to do the next interview. So I appreciate you guys for taking the time and, and sharing your story. Thank you, Nathaniel. Appreciate it. Those were Nathan Woodhull and John Warno. They are at daisychain.app. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere, and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.